Remember Ranya Gurdish to working on my book. By Krishna's here. He'll be here for another maybe six weeks or so. And uh, he's doing lots of service. Chidhar is here almost every day, also. Um, we're trying to take the Audarya, you know, it's a beautiful place, but it was it never was never finished in terms of my my vision, <laughs> whether it ever will be in terms of my vision, I'm not sure. But we're, uh, we're along with the publishing, moving in that, uh, at that direction. So um, it's nice. <clears throat> okay. Well, we have um, five questions today so far. Okay. Maybe some more that pop up um, in the chat. Um, so the first question is from Eric, who's sitting at the airport, ready to take off soon. So we're going to let him go first. Okay. Nandavat Pranams. Uh, good morning, Maharaj. Nice to see you. Morning. Um, so my question is regarding some statements from previous Acharyas regarding the 10th Canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. So I've often heard that one shouldn't read the 10th Canto without having first read all the earlier ones. So for this reason, I've tended to err on the side of caution from reading anything concerning topics within the 10th Canto. However, I've also heard that other books, such as Srila Prabhupada's Krishna book, are okay for people to read in general, since he's sort of interwoven commentary throughout it. So I guess I just wanted to clarify, is it permissible for someone like myself who hasn't read all the cantos up to the 10th to read these sorts of literatures or similar narratives and you know translations of 10th canto pastimes as long as they're narrated by acharyas within you know, Gaudiya lineage i guess i was thinking of this question when i was reading your book aesthetic vedanta and i got to the second section and i didn't know if i could proceed further if it was okay for me to do so but it's okay yeah um Yes, uh, reading the Bhagavatam is important. Uh, it's one of five angas, hearing the Bhagavatam, um, mentioned by Rupa Goswami and underscored by Rupa Goswami in his section in Bhagavatam Sindhu, where he um, delineates the various angas of uh, Vaidhi Bhakti, most all of which are also in, incorporated into the practice of, of uh, rag bhakti. Um, so, asadu sangha nam kirtan bhagavat shravan. So, asadu sangha uh, nam kirtan bhagavat shravan, hearing the bhagavatam. Then he also includes uh, living in Mathura, a holy place, and uh, worship of the deity. These five angas the bhakti are very uh, powerful. <clears throat> and with regard to your question, um, he hearing the Bhagavatam in the commentaries uh, on Rupa Goswami's verse, um, I believe Bishvanachakrati Thakur echoes uh, Jiva Goswami, the original commentator, who says this means the 10th canto of the Bhagavatam. Mm -hmm. So they don't, uh, the earlier and founding acharyas of the Sampradaya don't give that kind of a caution. 
that uh, you have to read the first nine cantos before reading the 10th canto. But it makes sense that you read the first canto <laughs> of a book and the second canto, the third canto, and so forth, and do it in, in, in order. Um, that said, in contrast to those founding acharyas of the Sampradaya, Prabhupada, the founding acharya of ISKCON, um, he uh, did emphasize, and that's what you refer to repeatedly, and the necessity to read the first nine cantos before reading the 10th canto. But he himself um, published a commentary on really a uh, prose rendering of the 10th canto with his own commentary interwoven into it. Um, and uh, it originally came out in two volumes. We used to call it the Krishna book. Um, and it's the first book I read, <laughs> the Krishna book. When I, uh, be, before I was initiated, I, I had acquired a copy of the Krishna book and I used to read it. And where it was around me, I would lecture. Uh, love to hear those lectures now. <laughs> uh, that was like 1971, 1972. Um, probably early 1972. Um, and so he published that uh, prior uh, to publishing, um, I believe he, he, well, he was working, he, he had already written his commentary on the first canto and probably some other cantos as well. I'm not sure, historically, I can't remember if the, if the Bhaktivedanta Book Trust had published his, um, his translation of any earlier cantos before the Krishna book, but at any rate, long before, he finished his commentary on the Bhagavatam, which did take him up into the uh, 13th, I think, chapter, 12th or 13th chapter of the 10th canto. Long before that was done, the Krishna book was published and widely circulated. Hmm. Um, Prabhupada was asked about that once, um, that you said we should read the nice first nine cantos, but you've given... 10th canto and I believe he said something to the effect that you have to give a little uh, taste of what it's all about so to speak to get people interested in the first place um, but um, his emphasis was I believe that it's important to understand the underlying tattva the philosophy uh, Without, because in a broad sense, without understanding that, then the story of Krishna, his life, if you will, his Prakat Leela, the manifest Leela in the 10th canto, uh, if you were just to isolate that and take that out um, without any commentary, then uh, uh, it could be easily misunderstood if you don't understand the underlying tattva 
what we're talking about philosophically speaking when we speak of Krishna. It it it, it may sound perhaps like a story of um, of uh, of young adolescents. Um, 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 romanticizing and, and, and so forth in ways that uh, would be appropriate adulterous activity even at least with regard to the the, the acme the zenith of the 10th canto which is the five chapters dealing with Krishna's Rasa Leela the book the 10th canto book leads up to that and there's a couple of aftermath chapters, if you will, uh, before Krishna proceeds to Mathura and Dwarka, which properly understood are reflecting back on Braj, the Leela there. Um, but the, 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 the five chapters on, uh, of Krishna's Rasa Leela, and there's maybe three chapters, uh, or, or there are several chapters, I should say, that precede that, that are centered on Sakiras, and then there's three or four chapters that precede that, that are centered on Vatsali Rasa. And um, these chapters really bring out those sentiments with a view to attract listeners uh, um, to those sentiments and thereby uh, gain access into the uh, service within the Leela, but that's the highest ideal, the Prayogen, the, the goal and, and so forth. And so uh, he wanted that the public and his students would understand the entire body of the book, not just take the head and cut off the body. Um, and I think that he was um, rightfully cautious but the question that you have and the way that you reacted to uh, reading my book, Aesthetic Vedanta, uh, demonstrates that uh, that caution was taken to an extreme on the part of listeners without uh, balance. Uh, to give another example, um, Prabhupada would caution about uh, focusing on, on the Gopi Leela, uh, but uh, he received some comments, perhaps in the mail or, or from some of his students in discussing with them that made him reply, and I don't forget, forget exactly what they were, but it made him reply, uh, it's not that gopis are bad. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. <laughs> so the fact that they would speak about it or write about it in such a way that it sounded like it was a, thought it was a bad thing, he had to make that corrective uh, comment. And of course, um, whenever uh, an acharya speaks, then the points that he makes are going to be most pertinent to the time and circumstances which he, in which he or she is 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 presently um, 
uh, preaching. And many, many factors will come into play over time when that present acharya becomes a purvacharya or a previous acharya. So Prabhupada is now a purvacharya, a previous acharya. And so uh, while his, his work is relevant for all times, it's most relevant for the time in which he was writing and, and, and speaking and setting an example. And some of the things that he said would be almost exclusively pertinent to that time and not pertinent in, in new times and new circumstances and so forth. So the, the times, for example, were that in the Western countries where he made his focus, this was an entirely new, uh, new thing. For the most part, even in uh, the academic community, if you were to learn about Hinduism in school, you'd learn about the caste system and Advaita Vedanta. Uh, no other forms of Vedanta, there are four other forms of Vedanta, they're theistic um, and are thereby the, uh, the majority you know, perspective on what the uh, Vedic literature is about, that it's theistic rather than monistic in the case of Adi Shankar's um, Advaita Vedanta. Um, so uh, that just gives you some idea now what, what it was like. And, and also, I think that the, the majority um, of the people that uh, Prabhupada was attracting had come from a background that involved foregoing certain moral uh, sensibilities in a free love, you know, type of um, alternative uh, culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, comparatively, things are quite different now. A young man like yourself comes in touch with uh, Godi of Vaishnavism, and there's not just one mission. There are many missions, or a number of them, I should say. There's not just one guru. There are a number of gurus. And um, in there is much more information about all that Godi of Vaishnavism is as a religious group. Mm -hmm. um, not only in the international world, but in what it is in India, what it has been, what its history is, and so forth. Prabhupada gave us an overview, you know, of, 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 of many things. His campaign was very wide, very broad. And so when you're doing that, then you can't focus as much on, on, on depth or going into depth in any particular issue, or you're going to choose, I should say, certain issues to go into depth on that you think are very pertinent and important in the time and the circumstances that you find yourself, um, that the Acharya finds himself or herself. So um, it's very different now. Um, and, and so that has to be uh, taken into, into consideration. But I think the overall point of Prabhupada's obviously holds that it's important to um, 
understand, imbibe, uh, digest the underlying philosophy and theology that Leela narratives um, by which I should say Leela narratives will be will be properly un understood hmm? um, to be more, for example, than just a, uh, an imaginary story that has moral content or spiritual lessons in it, that it's an ontological uh, reality and why it is. Hmm? Um, why it's a necessity uh, and so forth for, for the ultimate reality to play out itself out in that way and so on and so forth. So th th that's important for us to uh, um, understand the Leela property, to take advantage of Leela narratives and uh, enter into them from aesthetic point of view, what, what, what content is there? Hmm? Um, and so on and so forth. Um, to be acquainted with rasa tattva, the tattva, the underlying tattva of the um, aesthetic, the sacred aesthetic rapture, rasa. So the point is well is well taken, but um, it's uh, the way in which Prophet emphasized it in the time, it was more pertinent to the time than it is now in 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 these these times. So, uh, and for that matter, um, even the formal institution of Prabhupada's the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, which tends to be conservative and, and, and insular, has uh, members um, of that society publishing. Um, uh, for example, the, the commentaries of other previous acharyas, the founding acharyas, commentaries of Jiva Goswami, uh, Sanatana Goswami, um, later commentary, uh, it's quite widely um, read and accepted, uh, the, that of uh, Vishwanath Chakrabarti Thakur, um, and there are other institutions, Gaudi institutions also publishing such literature that just wasn't available um, at the time. Um, so it's a very different climate, very different circumstances. And much has been said about um, the 10th Canto and, uh, and uh, uh, explained about it and so forth. So I think the caution of Prophet has to be looked at in light of the times and circumstance. So when you're listening to me and you ask questions regularly, you hear it, so forth. So, so I think if you, yes, uh, so, yeah, you will not run into the kind of problems that Prabhupada was concerned about if you read the 10th canon of the Bible. It'll do you good. Thank you so much, Maharaj. Really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, going. You're at the airport. Where are you going? Oh, oh, um, I'm going back to San Francisco. Um, I was just visiting Aradna and Gordon Ryan and other devotees in Asheville recently. That's nice. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So, 
just an update. We now have six more questions. So just okay. <laughs> um, so Subal, you need to unmute yourself or get on the call somehow. And about Skirmash. Can you hear me? Yep. Good to see you. Um, my question is, we've been having some local discussions here amongst ourselves about the idea that faith in general starts as Logika Shruta, and then it naturally progresses into Shastriya Shruta. So two things. One is, what's the healthiest way for us as individuals to go through that transition um, so that we stay balanced and, and we don't upset the other the other folks as we go through that, but also how we can have discussions in mixed audiences in such a way that we encourage others to, to healthily transition um, and encourage others to also take advantage of all of our acharyas and our, and our body of literature. Well, Loki um, Shraddha means ordinary Shraddha, ordinary faith. Uh, that's not necessarily uh, grounded in in the scriptural um, discourse and argument and exclamation and explanations and so forth. And Shastriya Shraddha is, by contrast, that faith that's derived from uh, scriptural argument and explanations and so forth. Um, and uh, I think that... Um, that uh, was the first part of your question, how to move from one to the, from the former to the latter. Um, yes, how to, how to healthily transition ourselves from one to the other. Um, well, I think that we do that and, naturally because we, we uh, uh, you know, in our sessions, uh, sanghas and so forth, the discussion is from scripture. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, one of what, well, I think that I would say in general, an important thing, and Prabhupada did this was to emphasize the scripture. What is the scripture? What is the value of it? What is the whole idea of revelation? The broad idea of revelation. It's not just a dusty old book on a shelf, but you have to understand the argument of revelation that, that, uh, that if the absolute infinite wants the finite, to know about itself, then the finite can can know, otherwise not. How can the finite digest the infinite? Hmm? Well, it has to come from the infinite. The infinite can make that which was otherwise impossible, possible. Hmm? Um, so revelation is, 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 is the Godhead, so to speak, reaching out uh, to us and explaining himself to us and so forth. Um, so uh, it's important in a broad sense to emphasize and understand the argument as to and for the necessity of revelation. Mm -hmm. And then there's an argument within that as to the specific texts like the Bhagavatam, for example, that um, we give primacy to in terms of revelation as per uh, the Pramaya Tattva of Tattva Sandarbha, where Jiva Goswami goes through a very well-reasoned explanation of the importance of Srimad Bhagavatam 
Hmm. Um, within, from, with regard to the entire corpus of Eastern Revelation. And then there's a discussion to compare the Eastern Revelation with the Western Revelation idea, um, and, and so on and so forth. And so you can, by such, you can create faith in Shastra itself, hmm? which is uh, perhaps the first uh, step to take outside of the what's in the Shastra, what is the Shastra, hmm? and um, and Prabhupada used to do did that by uh, you know repeatedly. One of his favorite analogies was to compare the Shastra to to the law books. Of course, I like to take that analogy and develop it um, because it could be understood. So, okay, here's the law books. There, there, it's done. You know, it's in the law book. But the law books, of course, they help us to determine the law in an ongoing sense going forward as new. Uh, circumstances arise hmm? if the law book says to kill is 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 a crime but then someone kills accidentally oh, now you have to think about that hmm? and and the new law is going to be written as well but at any rate i've explained that um, many times uh, kind of a dynamic way of looking at what prophet said but it's it's one of the ways in which he emphasized this importance of revelation itself and then within it, that, as I say, the particular texts that we uh, emphasize and why um, those types of arguments and discussions about that, they will create faith in Shastra itself. The, uh, if you look at the, the entirety of the Eastern Revelation, then you find uh, a large, the lar larger section, as Krishna explains in the Gita of, the, of, of Revelation, is... Um, deals with subjects within the modes of nature and, act, and, and, a, and a license, if you will, to acquire. Hmm? We are driven by our conditioning to be uh, collectors, acquirers, because we feel there's something lacking in ourselves, and we can add things on and be more complete. Um, so we want to take, if you will, from the environment, but as much as you take, as much as you owe, if not more. Um, but there's a way to take with a license, so to speak. So that's the whole karma conda section, the the the, the uh, pravritti marg, the uh, the karma marg, uh, and in that whole section of the sacred texts, properly understood, is an effort to awaken faith in shastra. Period, hmm? such that will be compelled to look further into it and beyond this larger section of property mark of, of, of material acquisition to um, renunciation and then further to um, a transcendental kind of acquisition, if you will, um, in terms of uh, uh, seva on the other side. Um, so that looks like karma, but it's entirely different because one passes through giving up the exploitation and the renunciation of that and not taking one passes through and enter, enter into loving. Um, so uh, that what I mean by that is that the, the karma conda section says, okay, if you want to take this, you have to do that. 
And that is the sacrifice. If you want to get this, you have to sacrifice in that way. If you want to do this, you have to put this aside and that aside, and then do this at this time and so forth. So what's being excuse me, emphasized there, if one pays attention, which one should, Atato Dharma Jignasu says for humans, now's the time to inquire about Dharma. What is Dharma? Hmm. Um, and so paying attention to that, one starts to figure out what's really being emphasized is not the thing that I want. That's my focus. What's being emphasized is the means to get there consistently is the same. The things may be different that I want. I may want a wife. I may want a husband. I may want a son, a daughter. I may want uh, money, land, cows, as may be the case. But the way to get there consistently through is through sacrifice, some kind of sacrifice, some kind of sacrifice. So, so sacrifice is the way uh, to progress, giving up, letting go. Hmm? Giving, if you will, is the receiving. Hmm? So, you, you, and, and so, but, 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 you, but you, if you do the sacrifice, right, you get the things. So when you get the things, you get faith in the scripture. So, you, so then you, you, you look carefully at it, and you start to realize this point I'm making. What's really talking about here is that, is that I thought the getting was the thing I wanted, but, but the, the real getting is, is in the giving. How can I give more? Hmm. And so forth. And that takes us then to, to the sections of the, of the text, that, of the sacred revelation, Shastra, that speaks about uh, you know, renunciation, less is more, and so forth. So from, from Dharma Jignasu, inquiry about religious life and a license to take, to live in this world bountifully, to uh, Brahma Jignasu, what is the nature of, of Brahman? He's more than someone just gives me things. <laughs> uh, he's got, and, and then Rasa Jignasu, further. Um, so, the point I'm making here is that in order to have Shastriya Shraddha, how can we grow that? One of the principal ways is to emphasize what is the Shastra? What is the importance of that? What, what is this body of, 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 of literature? How it's pertinent in, in terms of what it's discussing in today's uh, world um, and, and so forth. Um, but, you know, we... we, we uh, we do that in the, in the gatherings that you have there that you mentioned. I'm, I'm sure that the discussion is is based on the texts and so forth. But when you have, and so you're growing Shastriya Shraddha, but you have a mixed audience. I think that's the second part of your question. And um, I should say that, you know, again, faith in Shastra is something to the effect also that we, you know, we come to understand that there are certain things we learn this from Shastra that we can't understand it. The Shastra tends to put our intelligence in its place. It has a place, but it doesn't have the, 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 the highest place in terms of being a vehicle for knowing, arriving at comprehensive knowing. It doesn't. It, it very much taxes our intellect. And at the same time, let's, let's the intellect know that it's not what it thinks it is, or it's not what we think it is. It has a place. It has an important place, but unto itself, it's exercising. It is not going to bring us to comprehensive knowledge—knowledge knowledge by which we can become fully 
um, and satisfied and sense that there's nothing more that needs to be known. Hmm? Um, so anyway, um, in your gatherings, yes, you may have mixed groups, so it may be wise, for example, if you're going to uh, discuss a topic from, from, from the scripture to give some preface to that as to what the text is, why we're hearing from it. Uh, 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 there's um, uh, sometimes uh, in formal Bhagavad settings, you find certain verses are cited prior to reciting the Bhagavatam, giving deference to Vyas, to Narda, and Saraswati is maybe the case, and, um, and so on and so forth. So um, there may be some way of incorporating within that some preface to the discussion, especially when the group is mixed, that lays emphasis on the texts themselves. What will, um, and I, I think that is how we grow uh, Shastriya Shraddha to, to explain what Shastra is. And that has to be, it requires some ins insight to give a dynamic explanation so that it becomes, as they say, alive and, uh, you know, they understood as the God in reaching out to us and affirming to us with Om, Pranama, Om, what you want, you can have, but you're looking in the wrong place. And here's thousands of verses as to how that's the case and what's the place to look in and so forth. Um, so that's a big, big discussion, big argument, but to grow faith in 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 uh, God that is uh, derived from Shastra, it I think is required to emphasize what the Shastra is. Hope that helps. Okay, um, Roger. Oh wait, let's. We have a first question from the Spanish side. Pamela Swami, you want to ask your first question? So the question is with regard to something that I mentioned earlier, that of the, there are five angas of bhakti that have been underscored by Rupa Goswami at the end of his discourse on um, sadhana bhakti. And um, one of those is living in Mathura. So the question is why Rupa Goswami spoke about living in Mathura instead of living in Vrindavan? What's to be taken from that? Hmm? Um, there's not much to be taken from that. Uh, what he's speaking about there is the Mathura Mandal in which Braj uh, is um, included. Um, he's not really speaking about the Mathura Leelas, hmm? the killing of Kamsa and, and those Leelas that involve Krishna's having departed, at least apparently from Vrindavan, but about Vrindavan itself. So um, uh, still, the, the, uh, the Brudge reason, uh, region, I should say, is sometimes referred to as the Mathura Mandal. There's the Mathura Mahatmya of the, I think, the Padma Purana, speaking about the glories of living in the Mathura district. So Brudge is in the district of Mathura. It's like um, in the city of, um, you know, somewhere, a major city, uh, San Francisco, there are suburbs hmm, of San Francisco. So uh, 
and there's an, there may be an urban area uh, or a urban, suburban, suburban and rural, the, the, the urban area, the suburban area, and then a rural area that all may be within the district of um, San Francisco. So it's the district of Matura and Braj is part of that. So it's just a way of referring to Braj. But yes, his emphasis is on um, um, living in Vrindavan. He lived in Vrindavan. Um, the emphasis is also explained um, such that if you cannot physically live there, that you should live there mentally. If you do physically live there, you should also live there mentally. <laughs> you should, to actually live there is to live there mentally. Hmm? To live there with the mindset of the Brajbasis. You could live in Braj, but not live in the mindset. And you could live not physically in Braj, but live in the mindset and be more in, Brind in Vrindavan than those living there physically. So living there physically, the, the emphasis on that is that it will promote living there mentally more so than, a, than another physical location. Hmm? But the objective is to live there mentally, if you will, hmm? in, in the mindset of the Brajabhasis. So there's two ways of observing that Anga to live there physically and if you can't do that, to live there mentally. But in each case, the goal is to live there mentally. Hmm. Just easier, perhaps, to do the, to do that when, when, when living there. Now that could that that might be debatable. Depends who you are, hmm. and how overridden, if you will, places like the doms can become over time hmm. by. Um, the influence of time and so forth. Sometimes they shine more brightly because of sadhus bringing out their their greatness and sometimes they re recede and so forth, just like the birthplace of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had been, in an estimate of Bhakti note had been lost and he recovered it and so forth. So, so next question. Okay, there was a comment that it is like Nadia district, I think, so that same. Okay. Um, Bhumi, can you unmute yourself, ask your question? So children around the world are usually naturally, uh, they like Krishna. Um, and usually that holds throughout their childhood, they have that feeling of uh, sentimental intrigue and attachment. And then when they reach a, a more discerning age where it would be time for them to contemplate their philosophy more and the esoteric nature of, of the scriptures, they, um, there's, there's often a sort of inner battle they go through because of cultural contrasts, like uh, you know, in in the West, it's uh, a lot of the Western cultures are very anti-tradition these days, 
And uh, so they kind of look at religion as just this old archaic thing that is, is not useful anymore and it's even an exploitive, harmful thing. And so it's really hard for parents, uh, uh, devotee parents sometimes to, uh, to know how to guide their children through that a phase and, and keep them still um, within, uh, you know, even remotely interested, basically. And I know somebody else has asked me about this previously, but I, for some reason, can't remember what you said. But um, what kind of advice would you have for parents who are wanting to you know, keep their children's interest in pursuing spirituality? Right. I think that the most important thing his question, his question is that uh, young uh, children oftentimes in in Vaishnav families around the world um, where Gaudiya Vaishnavism has been disseminated they develop affinity for Krishna as children and they like Krishna and so on and so forth. But then when they start to become mature and their reasoning faculty uh, comes to bear, then uh, the cultures that they live in don't support uh, overtly and may even be opposed um, to uh, religious ideas and so on and so forth and so there's this struggle and it becomes difficult uh, for the parents to uh, bring the child up with a Krishna conscious uh, perspective and so is there any advice that I could give the parents um, or could I comment on that in general that seems to be the question um, well, I think that the in answering that, the first thing, of course, is that the, is, is that the children will be uh, most impressed when that which they are taught is also exemplified by those who teach it, and when there is a contrast between what one is teaching or speaking about and when, what one is doing, the children are quick to pick up on that the hypocrisy of that. Mm -hmm. So it's incumbent upon the parents who want to teach children, Vaishnav parents who want to teach their children Vaishnavism uh, to apply themselves in Vaishnavism in a way that's exemplary mm -hmm. for a householder. And um, that should provide an example that's very endearing and has greater strength and, 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 and power and more it provides more long-lasting impressions hmm, than impressions that they gather from school or from uh, the, 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 their iPhone or whatever the you know internet and and other and exposure to other ideas um, it would be difficult for them not to you know sort through those ideas and 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 I think they should have the facility to you know to do so to some extent rather than just being you know bound by a chastity belt if you will or something like that forcibly um, but uh, 
you know, the home life is, is, is very uh, nurturing and, and powerful. And so I think that the impressions that can be gained from that in that type of environment that I'm speaking about that the parents should provide will be longer lasting and will outweigh hmm, um, other influences over time, even if those inf other influences take precedence for some time. That said, of course, um, it's also um, important to be able to teach or to expose the children to teachings uh, or explanations of Vaishnavism that take into consideration the worldly influences that those children are being confronted um, by and give a thoughtful and insightful perspective as to the relevance of the teaching in relation to the modern world. Someone asked me the other day, uh, you know, how is an ancient, how do we live in a modern world given an ancient uh, 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 identification with an ancient tradition? Well, you know, first of all, the question is, how much do you want to live in the modern world? Hmm? Is that necessarily the most uh, uh, advantageous thing for you as, as, as a human being and all of its implications? Um, a transcendentalist has you know, a broader perspective that modern or ancient, the world is in, in many respects the same. Hmm? And from, a, from the, with the broadest brush, but in, importantly, it's, you know, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, and here we go, you know, down the line into the basic tenets of, uh, of Vedanta. Hmm? Uh, so to be, to be grounded in that is very important. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was a young man. Of course, he was 24 years old, but he took sannyasa. Sarva Goma thought, how will he be able to maintain this because of the influence of the world and so forth? Even from a religious point of view, you know, to remain as a sannyasi rather than as a householder. And he thought to ground him in Vedanta uh, philosophy. So um, if, if they get exposure to, they get the opportunity to be exposed, which is inevitable to modern thoughts and, and conceptions. And then they get to discuss them with their parents or their parents introduce them to persons who they can discuss them with, who can reply from a Vaishnav uh, perspective, then that will uh, certainly um, help them to have a rational understanding of the early sentimental uh, and lokic ordinary faith, hmm? so that they have well reasoned uh, faith in Vaishnavism. The, the, you know, that's how we, our faith becomes strong. I've often given the example if you take steel and you want to make it stronger, what do you do? You put it in the fire, which sounds contradictory because in the fire it will melt, but you bring it out just at the point before it melts. And then in a cooler temperature, it, it hardens it. And then you stick it back in and so forth. So um, the, in order for faith to become well-grounded in Shastra and Shastra Yukti, scriptural reasoning and so forth. Well, 
Um, we have to look at other traditions, other ways of thinking from that vantage point and so forth and be able to respond to it and so on. Um, and, you know, many adults need that. Claro, as well. <laughs> well, to speak of, 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 of the children. But there are very, very powerful, compelling, and good arguments for the for the from a the, from a philosophical point of view, from a theological point of view, from a sociological point of view, from a psychological point of view, from a physical point of view, how uh, advocacies within our Gaudi tradition hmm, are relevant in the world today. And you, you, you know, so you need to go if you want to talk about it from a philosophical point of view, how our teaching is relevant. Well, we could go on for hours. If you want that from a theological point of view, hmm? I mean, I have to, you know, from a philosophical point of view, what are we? Hmm? Do you have a mind or is there just a brain? Is, is there meaning to life? Does life has to have a purpose, an overarching purpose, or is it just meaningless? Um, and whatever meaning we make up, is 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 the meaning that's materialism that's the dominant philosophical perspective so you, you know if you if you can go deeply into that issue you can really ground a young person or any person in um in in basic tenets of vaishnavism and and help that person to feel confident that their perspective is reasonable. Hmm? That's what you're talking about. Is my faith reasonable? Or is that just a story that my parents told me and, it, and they don't do it either and it doesn't make any sense? It's kind of a cartoon, Krishna, you know, uh, had a doll of Krishna, you know, but I don't want to play with dolls my whole life. I'm an adult now, you know, kind of a thing. So to, to, to uh, strengthen the faith, the, the heart, with the head, as I often say, use the head to strengthen, but also soften your heart. The heart is soft. When the heart is soft, it's strong. Hmm? When, they, when it's softened by the head, then it becomes very strong. Hmm? Um, and if you don't use your head to soften the heart in the way I'm talking, then the heart becomes hard. Hmm? Then even when you have religious expressions that are very hard-hearted, they lack compassion and uh, um, and are narrow-minded and so on and so forth. So anyway, the philosophical, then from a theological point of view, you know, is it is it relevant? Well, I mean, just is Christianity relevant? For a lot of people, it's not, but for plenty of people, it is also. You know, one person, Jesus, did one miracle. Well, you know, and there were 12 witnesses or, you know, half a dozen or something like that. Hmm. Well, our Eastern Savior, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, did many miracles and hundreds and thousands of witnesses and many biographies about him uh, and so forth. That history should be, should be made known. And then what's the underlying philosophy? When you look at, you know, Gaudiya Vaishnavism compared to, theologically speaking now, compared to other religious traditions like the Western traditions, let's say, like Christianity, um, you, you have, there's no explanation to Christianity. What is the world? What is matter? Hmm? There's no explanation within Christianity of that. Gaudiya Vaishnavism includes not only what's out there, but more importantly, who's asking the question. And that's what life's about. Who's out? What's out there? 
and who's asking the question. Hmm? So it addresses from both sides. So from a theological point of view, you can point out the, the, the relevance of its power comparatively, you know, from, then from a sociological uh, point of view, you can discuss it. I don't have the time to go into that, psychological perspective and so forth. So if you give me the time, I could go through all of these things and show, uh, make a case for the relevance of the Vaishnava perspective. So they need to hear that. Um, parents need to hear that. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy thing. I mean, everyone has to grow up and make decisions, what they're going to do in life and what, what's, what's, hopefully they're going to decide what's, what's rational. You know, many people don't even bother with what's rational. They just follow their feelings and they're just driven by their senses. And a rational person, parents or elders, whomever, have to point out the, the shortcomings of being an animal when in human dress, hmm? uh, just pursuing the senses. Are they, are, are, are they yours? Do whatever you want. Hmm? Can you see without the sun? Shouldn't you have some gratitude for the sun? Does that make sense? Hmm? Does this make sense before the sun? You can't see without it. Hmm? Um, and so on. I mean, there's so many ways to, uh, to, to, to bring us as humans through Vaishnavism closer in touch with nature hmm? uh, for what it is in such a way that nature will also be inclined to help us to understand that she has a soul and it's us and so on. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a good philosophy hmm? is, re- is required and good example. Hmm? Even if we're lacking philosophically as parents, our example, if it's a living example of real Vaishnav uh, progress, hmm? can't be just a living example of some fanatical uh, uh, practice that's not well thought up and isn't showing up hmm? in terms of compassion, kindness to others, uh, uh, broad-mindedness. Vaishnava should be very broad-minded, should be able to discuss different issues, not, not an example of hiding from other books and, and just calling other traditions names. And so that, that, that's not going to be, uh, even if you're strict in your, your, your chanting, but that's what's coming out of it. You're, you're, you're doing something wrong and your example is not going to be compelling. So I'll, send a look. I'll stop there with that and we'll see if we can answer some of the other questions that are a little, little more quickly. Okay. Um, the last questions are all from the Spanish side. So, okay. the question is that how to increase, intensify one's practice, one's sadhana, when, when it's not intense. <laughs> he says, uh, for example, he wants to chant 16 rounds, but he can't. And the world comes on every morning and uh, takes over is uh his life and so forth so given that situation how can he intensify his sadhana well i think that you have to do, you, you have to adopt a sadhana that you can practice every day hmm? so if you if you find you're not able to chant 16 rounds and you chant eight rounds every day and do it at the same time every day and and in conjunction with what other other practices you may have reading and so forth and in the in a concentrated way um without distractions, with an effort to, um, what is it, to push out 
other thoughts and so forth, close the door and practice a lot sometime, you know, for that, wherein the practice is not distracted. If you're trying to chant 16 rounds, but you but to get to eight, nine, and your mind's going to, I gotta get to work, I gotta do this, I'm gonna be doing that, then you know, cut it off and chant less, but concentrate it. That's what I would suggest. Another question. The question is what makes Krishna the maximum authority, the supreme authority? Hmm. Well, that's a question that could obviously lend to a lot of discussion and a long answer. I'll give you a short answer. Hmm. Within the Hindu uh, pantheon of gods and goddesses and beyond that, cross-culturally to different religious traditions, hmm, um, we can make a comparative study. Hmm. Uh, if we look at Christianity, we find the, the, the position of Christ is thought to be supreme. Hmm. But Christ is the sacrificer and Krishna is the enjoyer. Krishna is depicted as the enjoyer. So the sacrifices that Christ is making is for someone. And that someone is supreme. He may be one with that father, if you will, in some respect, as, as we think of it, one and different. But if there is to be a sacrificer whom we think has made the supreme sacrifice, as I think it's thought of Jesus in Christianity, we have to understand that he's sacrificing for someone. So who is the someone? What do we know about that someone? Not very much. In Krishna consciousness, in Bodhi Vaishnavism, we, 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 there's in all forms of Vaishnavism, there's an emphasis on the enjoyer, Narayan, hmm? in his different forms and so forth. And he's differentiated Narayan from, from Shiva, who's also doing tapa, tapas, meditating to attain something. Narayan's not a in all of his forms, is not trying to attain anything. All the expressions of Narayan of himself are not trying to attain anything. Hmm? So uh, the description of the Godhead within Vaishnavism is very compelling in terms of speaking about the, the center, the ultimate taker, hmm? the enjoyer, who, uh, who, who, because he is the center, can take in such a way that that energy can then be redistributed back to everyone. Mm -hmm. So when we come then uh, within Vaishnavism, uh, but I'm just speaking quickly here, briefly, then brought it from Narayan to Krishna, what do we find? I mean, Krishna wields in Braj, in Vrindavan, wields no weapon, he only plays. That's all he does, he's only playing. Mm -hmm. His weapon is a flute. <laughs> he's only playing so when in order to play you have to have some power so for example if you want to take a vacation and play you have to have some power with the company hmm? they will give you time off you have to have some power in the bank in terms of money that you saved to spend on the vacation hmm? So the play requires power. So one who is only playing, and that is Krishna. The term Leela means to play in a broad sense, and it most applies by far 
more than anywhere else hmm, to Krishna in Vrindavan. Krishna in Mathura, Krishna in Dwarka is not playing hmm, to the same extent as he is in Vrindavan. So the, the, the form of the Godhead within Hinduism, cross-culturally, you look at it. Hmm? Who is the most powerful should be the one who has nothing else to accomplish, who's fully accomplished, and therefore his movements will only be out of being accomplished, play. Hmm? Not that he has to attain anything. There may be something to be attained within the play. Hmm? Krishna wants to attain Radha's attention within the play, but that's all play. Hmm? Krishna's not lacking anything. He's only playing. Within the context of the play, there's something to attain hmm? only. Hmm? So the Buddha had to attain something. He had to attain Buddhahood. Hmm? Uh, who else we got? Jesus, Muhammad, you know, he, in Islam, he's certainly not an example of, uh, of the Supreme himself. He's speaking about the Supreme, but in, the, in, in his very broad and vague way. Hmm? Um, so we get some specifics within Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and that voice from transcendence, that voice from revelation, uh, objectively speaking, if you can determine that what's being spoken about here is something that has spiritual credibility, hmm? Krishna Lila, because of the philosophy that underlies it, theology that underlies it, and so forth, which is considerable, hmm? it has to be taken seriously. Then that the voice about that hmm, is the most complete voice about the nature of the absolute. Hmm? The nature of the God that we that we that it's available on earth. Hmm? Oftentimes, again, in contrast, Christianity is like God has no face, so you don't know anything about him. Hmm? Hmm? Vaishnavism specializes in this discussion as to the nature of, of transcendence, the nature of transcendence, hmm? the nature of the Godhead. And in, 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 in the literature about Krishna, it becomes very specific. Hmm? And in the broad sense, again, he's, here is a fully accomplished being hmm, that didn't need to do anything to become accomplished. You could say, well, the Buddha is accomplished, but he had to do something to be accomplished to the extent that, 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 he, that he is. Hmm. So, what's my thoughts on that? Bhagavan Shri Krishna Pijai. So is that it, or is another question? There is about... one more. So the question is about the Bhagavad Gita, second chapter, verse 14, where Krishna extols the virtues of tolerance. There he says, happiness, distress, good, bad, uh, hot and cold. These are all products of the senses and the mind, and one should tolerate. So the question is, well, how do I tolerate? Why do I have to tolerate happiness? I want happiness. I want happiness for my friends and so forth. Well, what Krishna is saying there is that, that happiness and sadness, good and bad, uh, hot and cold, all of these are perceptions of the, the, that arise in the mind. Hmm? And they're not what they appear to be. 
And so therefore, so we shouldn't run after material happiness or run away from material distress. We should understand them to just be perceptions of the mind and they're not what they appear to be. And rather than being driven, as I say, by disappointments in life, the sadness, or driven by the happiness, you should step back and see them for what they are and ground oneself beyond the dualities of the appearance of happiness, the appearance of distress, because as Krishna explains later in the Gita, material happiness is the the beginning of material distress. Mm -hmm. Let's say, for example, we we want material happiness for our friends or ourselves, but um, as much as that involves acquiring something, it involves losing something. So if I want my daughter to be happy by getting a good husband, hmm, reasonable desire, hmm, we have to also understand in a, in a larger sense that she'll become attached to her husband and her husband will leave her either by death or he's a good husband, only by death. And so the attachment that was now bringing her happiness because that object is now gone from her life will bring her distress. Hmm? So happiness and distress, these are two illusory perceptions. Hmm? They're, you look at the other side of the coin and happiness is distress. Obviously I'm giving a broader Vedantic uh, picture, relatively speaking, sure. We want people, people, people to be happy. We want ourselves to be happy. But we should be careful about being overwhelmed by the happiness that we achieve or driven by the pursuit of that happiness unto itself. Hmm? Because it's not what it appears to be. Hmm? And it falls short in the ultimate. Therefore, there's a deeper happiness, hmm? a more rewarding and enduring happiness that lies beyond the happiness and the distress that comes from sense perception and the mind. I mean, is it really happy? In your mind, it's happy. In my mind, it may be unhappy. Hmm? The very same thing. So which is that happiness? I say, you say an object is, 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 is is a cause for happiness. I say the same object is a cause for distress. Hmm. What will a third person say in between? Well, maybe one, maybe part time, so one another. So which is it? Hmm. The point is, it's 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 uh, it's, it's it's an illusion. Hmm. So we, we should not live our life in, driven for the pursuit of material happiness, hmm, nor running away from material sadness. Obviously, within moderation, in a broader sense. Hmm, we want a material well-being for everyone. And within the context of that, the pursuit of transcendental happiness. We want a kind of a horizontal you know, foundation of our material life that's wholesome and happy, relatively speaking, hmm? so that we can 
rather than chase after those things, use a better part of our energy to pursue vertical growth, spiritual uh, growth, hmm? where we can find enduring happiness. Um, you know, sometimes people ask, why is it that good people who follow Dharma are met with so much misfortune? Hmm? Well, the question is presumes that the result of dharma should be material happiness, but that's not the result of dharma, ultimately. The fruit of living a dharmic life, in the full sense of the term, can't be material happiness. If it is, then, it, then, it, then it, it's not worth the, worth the effort. You can acquire things without being dharmic in this life. You can steal things. Hmm? Oh, there may be other way, ways. So the real, the fruit of a of a of a dharmic, appropriate, proper life is 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 not material happiness per se, and therefore to underscore that, often persons who are living a dharmic life get opposite results like the pandavas hmm? material distress which underscores and emphasizes for them the nature of the world hmm? because in an overarching sense the world is actually a place of suffering that we're trying to get out of when we mitigate this suffering temporarily by some material happiness we think we've succeeded but it doesn't go away it keeps eating at us we're, we're, we're struggling then to overcome hmm, the inevitability of our own demise hmm? i'm living on death row i mean so today they brought me a pizza you know great you know i'm living on death row okay so Death row means I'm. It's an English thing. I'm living in the prison and I'm sentenced to, to be to be to, to die. Hmm? So my happiness is today. I got a cigarette, you know, whatever they give them, you know. Um, but if you look at the bigger picture, well, it, it's not a very happy situation. That is the, the transcendentalist perspective on the world. So they don't put as much stock in material happiness unto itself, within reason. Right, but these things should be tolerated. It means we shouldn't be intoxicated by our material gains and think everything's great. Bhaktivinoda said, I curse good health because in good health, I think I'm all right and I'm not. Now, that's a strong statement by someone in Bhava. We should pursue good health within reason, but we should have to live inside the larger picture also so that, so that we don't become intoxicated by the pursuit of material happiness and um, just bounce back and forth between avoiding distress and getting happiness and going to heaven, going to hell and the lifetime after lifetime in the broader picture to end the whole thing. That is what we want. That's what you can do. Tarabali Saki. Kijai. Okay. Gorbakta Brinda Kijai.